Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. morning. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 3. I'm going to be reading and studying this morning verses 9 through 21. It's the second half of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. We'll just pick up right in the middle of the chapter there in verse 9. Jesus has just taught on the new birth, and Nicodemus says to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for... Uh, this conversation between our Lord Jesus and Nicodemus. I pray that this morning as we continue to work our way through it, you yourself would speak to our hearts even as you spoke to him. You are our hope for anything divine happening this morning. And so please come and be all our help. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning again we want to 
pick up where we left off at the midpoint of what is probably the most significant and fruitful conversation that was ever had on earth, and not just for this one man, but for the entirety of the human race since then until Jesus returns again. It's nothing short of heaven opened by nothing else but the gracious love of God revealed in the glorious cross of Christ. Back when men thought deeply about the Bible and taught all the better for it, they said things like this about this passage, this conversation, and especially John 3.16, that it is, quote, the Bible in miniature, uh, that it contains words that have brought eternal life to myriads of souls, and that, quote, the saving message is so effectively set forth that many from all ethnicities, all cultures, and times have found the way to life through it than any other biblical text. And so as we come to it, we really do stand on holy ground. Just to think how many will have that share in glory who deserved none of the first ounce or inch of it because God sent His Son to give these words and act them out for us and then make them powerful within us as just glory. It is amazing. It should be enough to command our unparalleled attention as we go. So, here we go. The first thing we're given to see is the dark fruit that is unbelief. Not necessarily the dark fruit of unbelief, but the dark fruit that is unbelief. Jesus has tried to teach this man about the must of being born again by the Spirit, and he responds, you see verse 9, oh Jesus, this was a mighty great lesson, thank you for it. No. He says, how can these things be? How can this be the case? How can this ever occur? Now, recalling Nicodemus as a Pharisee, he probably thinks he has a clue about what it takes to enter the kingdom of God. But in fact, he's clueless. And his cluelessness is an indictment upon him because, as Jesus has tried to make plain, what he's taught about the new birth is not new with Jesus. His teaching on all this is from that age-old teaching of the Bible, of Scripture. Good for Jesus, best for us. But that's a great part of the indictment of Nicodemus. You see how Jesus responds to this man's cluelessness in verse 10. He says, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? So friends, Nicodemus, according to Jesus, was the, he was the great pulpiteer. He's the, he was the, the chief expositor for the nation. He was... One said, a recognized master, a reverend, professor, doctor, a Jedi, if you will, of the Scriptures. Not to equate their spiritual states necessarily, but he's kind of like a a Billy Graham of Israel. And as such, any doubt he taught in the synagogues on passages that featured the new birth, like Ezekiel chapter 36 Uh, Might he not have done an ancient podcast episode or a conference on its counterparts like a Deuteronomy chapter 10? May he not have catechized and counseled individual souls on entering the life of the age to come? And yet, in it all, is it possible that he missed it all? 
Missed it all for others. Missed it all even also for himself. Uh, it is quite uh, a sobering thing to think that despite his studies and despite his office and despite his acumen and despite his ministries, the keynote speaker of Israel did not understand the first thing about the first things of salvation. He'd given his life to the Word, but the life of the Word he had never known. Right? He was in it, but it was not in him. And because of it, his teaching, and so his religion, and so his congregation lacked heart. It was the blind leading the blind. How careful we ought to be in selecting our teachers. How discerning concerning our disciples. And how resolved that they don't just fiddle with religious platitudes. But they preach the word of God. And that they not only preach the Word of God, but that they show the Word of God in their life. That they are then themselves actually living souls. Because you see, Nicodemus isn't clueless because he's intellectually slow. But because he's spiritually dead. His issue isn't first mentally processing the text of Scripture. His issue is submitting to the text of Scripture. It's putting himself under its divine testimony. It's not judging Scripture. It's letting Scripture judge him. I evangelized a man for over two years once. And in the end, he rejected all of it. He rejected all of it. Not because he didn't understand what I was saying to him. But precisely because he did understand exactly what I was saying to him, and determined, like the rich young ruler, just having been schooled by Jesus, that the biblical Christ was simply too costly to follow. And why is that? It's very simple and saddening for us, and it was for Jesus with the rich young ruler. He simply wasn't born again. Because if you have been born again, you know you cannot be held back from Jesus. You've seen too much of you to be kept back from Him. And enough of Him to be absolutely done with me, myself, and I. And I want us to see this in how Jesus goes on. We come to verse 11. And just see Jesus continuing. He says, listen, Nicodemus, you, you have your cohort of counselors and I have my group of counselors, but my group of counselors own what is truly divine. Now, it's, it's mostly unclear who Jesus means by we in this verse. Most seem to think he means his disciples, but I don't know, knowing his disciples at this point and I don't know, just where they are in the process of understanding him, I'm a little bit skeptical. Uh, that said... I tend to think Jesus is referring to his part in the divine council, we. Given what he's about to say and what he's just 
said about the Holy Spirit and what it was said in the prologue, if you remember this, how no one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. I tend to land right there. Jesus is speaking about His part in the divine council. But regardless, Jesus is letting Nicodemus know that to this point, He has been rejecting the testimony of God. And that, by definition, is unbelief. It's the prideful refusal from Adam, remember, to take God at His word. You say, now listen, how does that square with this man? Wasn't he a man of God's word? In a way, maybe. (laughs) But apparently, you can, in a way, be a man of God's word or a woman of God's word, but not be a man or woman after God's own heart. How again can we know that? Jesus tells us. You don't receive my testimony. You don't listen to me. You don't believe me. That's how. The entirety of Scripture, as he's about to show, is about him. And only rightly understood in light of him. So do you trust Jesus? All the Bible is telling us to trust Jesus. But whereas we see Andrew and Peter and Philip and Nathaniel, right? They meet Jesus and it's like, I'm going after him, following him. Nicodemus stalls. When he should have said, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be born again? His last words for now are, how can these things be? And in love, Jesus does not pull his punches. Because he's fishing for this man's soul. So he shoots him straight in verse 12. Nicodemus, if you don't believe me on first things, earthly things, elementary things, like the new birth, how can you believe? How can you? If I tell you heavenly things like, I don't know, the biblical pattern set up for the glorious crucifixion of the divine Christ for the salvation of the whole world. There is no more dreadful darkness than the darkness that is unbelief. Now, praise God, that darkness is conquerable. (laughs) New birth! But until it's conquered, how dreadful it is. Heaven itself can be opened up before it And a person will keep their place right where they are until their heart is opened by God to heaven. We cannot argue darkened souls into the kingdom. True faith is a divine miracle. And it's in that sweetest hope that we arrive at heaven opened. Okay? In verse 13... Jesus says something astounding and utterly unique of Himself. 
And the gist of it is this. There is this mysterious and heavenly figure in the Old Testament called the Son of Man. They didn't know what to make of this guy. And Jesus just comes onto the scene and says, that guy is me. And what it means here is that he knows things that we cannot possibly know. He's from heaven. And is able, therefore, to fully reveal the mystery of God's saving plan. And the fallout from this is eternally significant. For one friend, hearing that, you have to decide if you think Jesus is true or insane. Like he's either the Christ or he is crazy. In saying what he says, he does not let you straddle the fence. Oh, I don't really believe him, but I think he's a really nice chap. He's a good role model for humanity. He is an excellent teacher, clearly. Jesus doesn't let you do that. He's either a looney tune or he is a divine Christ who reveals the very key to glory. You must decide. That will direct where you look for your salvation. But there's more. Not to spoil it, but Jesus teaches that his cross is the key to heaven. And as he's the one who can reveal it, We're taught that true salvation is no man's invention. If Christ had kept His place above and not come down to us, we never would have imagined the gospel. If He had not revealed it to us, we never would have thought it. Nicodemus would never have put Numbers 21 together with Christ crucified. Never. And if He hadn't then raised our hearts to see it, we never would have believed it. So let us hear that Jesus needn't do more than He has already done to make salvation clear to unbelieving souls. Obscurity is no excuse for unbelief. What we're about to hear is really a a perfectly clear summons from heaven itself, to enter in by faith in Jesus Christ. And so, alluding again to Scripture, the Numbers 21 passage that Zach read for us in the call to worship, Jesus directs Nicodemus to this familiar passage. And in it, we catch the people of Israel in the act of yet still more sin against the Lord. And the Lord meets their sin with justice. He sends fiery serpents that greatly endanger the camp. In fact, it's worse. Many are bitten and they go on to die. So that the people, sobered up now to their sin, go urgently to Moses and confessing their sin, ask him to intercede for them with God that he would take the serpents away. And so very graciously, because they have not been kind to Moses at all, very graciously, Moses does this. He intercedes for them. Only God doesn't take them away. What he does we can now say, with a view to Christ, is commission the making of a bronze serpent on a pole. And this bronze serpent on a pole comes complete with a message. And the message is, everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So it's made, and it's lifted up for the people to look at, And sure enough, true to God's word, 
any snake-bitten person who, in their desperate agony, their lives literally slipping away, looked at that uplifted symbol of their judgment. They lived. They didn't die. Their judgment went away. God met their faith in His provision and message with a temporary sort of salvation. And this much would have been familiar to Nicodemus. But you see, Jesus isn't finished. That whole story is an historical illustration. It's revelation God gave to establish biblical categories of thought related to eternal salvation. It's about what God had ordained for His Son to achieve that greatest exchange from judgment to eternal life for all who believe in Jesus. And Now this is a glorious twist that instead of judgment only, which was expected, uh, the Son of Man would first become the means of our salvation, which was not as expected and perhaps even thought unnecessary for some. But Jesus leaves no doubt about it. You see the details of his application. Originally, Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, but Jesus is not Moses in this scenario, is he? He's the one who is being lifted up in the desert. Oh, friends, this heavenly one who will judge the world came down and first, per heaven's plan, to be lifted up on the cross of our salvation. And as he implies, it was what God ordained for him, that descent for our rescue was truly his glory. Lifted up. It wasn't something that he, he grumbled about having to do. What love we find in him. Christ came to be crucified. He took on a body to be crucified. He lived to be crucified. He exists to save us from our sins. And how necessary. He must be lifted up. He had to be crucified. This was the one way God saw fit to satisfy His justice against our sins. Only in Christ crucified. And again, how necessary in that we were not snake-bitten, we were sin-bitten. We aren't just dying, but we are spiritually dead from the moment of our first birth, our conception. We're spiritually dead and dying and in danger then of an eternal condemnation. And so we need a Savior who is me for it and there is none else but Jesus. And does He Himself not say so? That in His being lifted up, such a salvation would be achieved that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Not just quick healing, but divine life in the soul that grows and grows and grows until it comes full in all that we know to be 
glory. And we have only to believe him. (laughs) We have only to look at him in the realization of our sins, judged for us in him, and we will live. It can't be plainer. It can't be simpler. But it can go wider. Broader. It's likely that Jesus' words end at verse 15. And that what we have beginning in verse 16 is John's meditation on the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. We see this pattern again in the rest of John chapter 3. Story and then John's meditation upon the the story. At any rate, in verse 16, he applies Christ's words to the whole world. And that's not insignificant. Nothing in this verse is. And so to start with it, we need to see that left at verse 15, just cut off right there, we could conclude that God's saving love was only for Israel. And surely, someone like Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, had no problem with that kind of salvation, that kind of idea. In fact, I read this week in my studies that we have no evidence at all that any Jewish writer of that time ever wrote on God's love for the world. Leaving one to conclude that it is, quote, a distinctively Christian idea that God's love is wide enough, big enough to embrace all people. And it is John, a Jewish man, for what it's worth, by ethnicity, though Christian by the new birth, who does more than any to reveal this fact. God, he says elsewhere, his first letter, he says, God is what? God is love. God is love. That's his nature. God is just, but he's never said to be justice, as he is said to be love. We might say that God is first inclined then to grace and mercy and love. And we will see how vital that is for the fears of unbelieving souls in a moment. But here, John gloriously means to prove the point, to give unquestionable assurance, not to a certain people only, but indeed to all peoples whatsoever of God's heart. So, what he does is concretely reveal that heart. He tells us of its definite overflow into time and space. He puts a final face on the love of God. He shows its ultimate act when, for a world of sinners, He gave His only Son, His very heart, to be crucified and ordained it to be such a sacrifice that by it a salvation would be achieved sufficient to save all who believe in Jesus. And so simply put, heaven here is opened up. It's opened up by the love of God manifest in the cross of Christ. Atonement proceeds, one said, From the loving heart of God. It is not something we have to wring from Him. It's what He rejoices to put forward. 
even for a world of sinners. Let's be clear about this. Friends, God did not do this because we are so lovable. Nothing in the text says anything remotely close to that. Just the opposite, in fact. Remember in the illustration Jesus gave? Israel was a great group of sinners grumbling against God, disobeying His Word. And John applies that to the whole world here. Verses 19 and 20, if you look there, he uses terms like evil and wicked to describe human beings. But this this actually only enlarges the love of God, doesn't it? It only enlarges the love of God towards us when we realize that He loved us, not when we were morally akin to Him, but when we were hellishly at enmity against Him. When we were straight disobeying and doing everything under the power of sin to justify what is or would be our eternal condemnation. Then, right there, in that, God loved us. And not frugally, but most lavishly and expensively. He did not spare His Son that we might be saved. And not from negativity, not from an unfair shake at life, Not from the grip of hardship, not from the things we think most plague us today, but from what does actually most plague us. Sin, death, and hell. John calls it perishing. He does not mean by that term, cessation of existence. He means the opposite of eternal life. Not perish, but have eternal life. He means existing forever in whatever the experience is of what our sin deserves. Which is the insatiably just wrath of God. But, listen, John's entire point in this section is to say we need not be condemned. That in the gift of His Son, slain for us, what we could never satisfy, God has satisfied. On the cross, He made Jesus to stand in our place. To bear our sins. To take away the wrath of God from us. To so satisfy it as to put it away from us even forever that we might be forever free from it. That we might not perish. That we might be saved and then have eternal life instead. As a beloved, there is is no better word to hear in all the world than that the mission of Christ was and is first and now to save the world. Verse 17. And that verse 18, whoever then believes in Him is not condemned. That Jesus has done a work again of such efficacy that just by faith in Him as presented by God in these verses, one may be entirely relieved of the judgment they deserved and eternally blessed with a salvation we never could. Do you see it? 
Friends, do you see it? There it is, in Christ, in Christ alone. Heaven opened. And to enter, one has only to believe. Only to take God at His word. Only to look sinner to Savior. And live. So, why wouldn't we? Let's pick up in verse 19. And see man's self-judgment. What need has Christ to condemn when people so eagerly and readily condemn themselves from day to day? John verifies the judgment for us, but it's not exactly what we might expect here. It's not judgment in the end, out there. Final judgment just confirms a judgment revealed every moment of the unbelieving life. The light, he says, has come into the world. And people saw it and ran to it and embraced it. Sadly, no. What did he say? People loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. They hated the light. They shunned the light. Why? Because they didn't want their deeds to be exposed for what they were. And why not? Because, and this is so vital, it's the root of unbelief. Unbelievers intuitively know there is a God. They know it. There is a God, and they know He is good, and they know then that He is therefore just, and they know that they are not. And that they are then liable to judgment. And as I said, this is vital to understand. John's offering us some biblical psychology of unbelief here. Again, as with Nicodemus and as my friend that I told you about at the beginning, people aren't first unbelieving because they're intellectually compromised in some way, but because they're spiritually enslaved. Sure, the mind has its own problems, but at root, unbelief is a matter of the heart. It's not about some deficiency in the truth of Christ. It's it's about the deficiency that the truth of Christ exposes in you and me. The fact that there is this Savior reveals to us that we are sinners. And we hate it. Because we love our sin. We refuse to believe in Christ Because Christ came to separate us from what we love. By nature. Our sins. He threatens to bring to light what we love to do in the dark. Light is not our natural element. Darkness is. That's why, recall, we must be born again. Born from above. But until we are, no matter how much it torments us, and you and I both know how much sin can torment us, we still love it. 
won't break from it. And so listen, this is really hard to say. I want to say it as carefully as possible. The only people in hell then are those who chose to reject the love of God for the love of sin. We are responsible for our own demise. That's what John's saying here. Sovereignty, 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 whatever. Responsibility is ours. We're responsible for our own demise. Heaven is open in Christ, but only in Christ. That much is clear. So if anyone goes to hell, it is only because in spite of Christ, they chose it. God loved them, one said, and manifest a will to save them, but they loved darkness, and thus darkness will be their eternal portion. Souls are self-judged every moment of unbelief as those who love their sin instead of Christ. But there's another bit of insight I think we need to see here. The love of sin isn't the only root of unbelief, but acting sort of as a, a tag team, there's also the fear of judgment. Lest their deeds should be what? Exposed. And isn't this interesting? Isn't this interesting that unbelievers fear very much what in passing they may say they very much doubt exists. <laughs> we, we see it in the fall. We see it in the fall and it is probably the chief work of the devil to keep it so that sinners having a sense of their sin are afraid of God. They have a real sense of His justice and no sense of His grace. That's why Adam and Eve hid from God instead of in God. Why instead of going to Him for salvation, they avoided Him for fear of judgment. Sin blinded them to the truth, how God is fundamentally, essentially love and the Savior of sinners. Beloved, apart from the new birth, it is impossible to convince an unbelieving soul of God's love for them. Of His will to save them. That Christ's grace is greater than all their sins. The devil, listen, is tireless right there to keep souls in the dark. To convince them God will not receive them. That Christ cannot be trusted as this all-sufficient Savior. To make them simultaneously fear and yet scoff at the judgment. And to do it all without any hope at all. Love your sin, he says. Comfort is in the dark. Dismiss the gospel. What you need is safety from God. For you will find no salvation. What a liar. What a liar. Friend, our whole text is God's standing word to you to convince you you come to Jesus. You look on Him and you will 
not perish, but have eternal life. You don't listen to that other voice that says, oh, but that's not for you. That's not applicable to you. God says in the text over and over and over again, whoever believes, I will receive. It's your move. Alas, beloved, in our closing, verse 21, we come then to the fruit of new life. It's a fitting way to close out a, a meditation on this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus as it shows us the great difference between true disciples of Jesus and those still approaching Jesus in the dark. Real Christians stay by Christ. We live in the light. We love the day. We want to be openly identified with Jesus. We want people to see that our lives are not our own, that they have been changed, that anything that is in any way good about us is a direct result of the grace of God within us. We want to stand out in the dark. And as we stand out in the dark, we want to be a draw, as one put it, to the light of God's love. We want to show people how God so loved the world in our Lord Jesus. Is that what people get from you and me? Are we a people living in the light because we have new hearts and knowing the great love of Christ for us, no more fear of judgment? Beloved, the light ought to suit us just fine. It ought to suit us just fine. Putting off sin, putting on obedience to the Word, putting off pride, putting on humility, standing with the truth, opposite all the lies, sticking with Jesus, though all the world oppose, right there we see the wind-blown soul. Right? right there we see the new birth. Right there we see an heir of eternal life. Dear friend, uh, goodness, I can't leave this great text without asking you again to believe in Jesus. It's more than a Christian catchphrase. It's the single requirement. Christ has done everything else for receiving eternal life. That great stamp of God, no condemnation here. God has loved you and given you His Son just that whoever believes in Him will be saved. And so the question I just pose to you as we close is, won't you now do that? Beloved, I think it less than adequate if these verses are left as merely evangelistic and not also for our edification as believers. And so I'll simply urge us here. See how He's loved you and me. There's a great song about this. I will not sing it. I will not even read the whole of it, but a bit of it. And can it be? Remember Nicodemus, what he says there in verse 9? How can this be? <laughs> okay. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain. For me, 
who Him to death pursued. He left His Father's throne above, so free, so infinite His grace, emptied Himself in wondrous love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free. For oh my God, it found out me. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in Him is mine. Alive in Him, my living head. And clothed in righteousness divine. Amazing love, Nicodemus. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? And I'll just leave it right there. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Jesus. We thank You for what You have done to save us. To save us from the pit. To give us eternal life. To make us Your very own. We bless Your name. And ask now for anyone, anyone here, that has not yet believed, would you please cause them to be born again, even now, and to cast their whole souls upon Jesus Christ. Let peace and joy and salvation roll over their souls because of Christ. And please help us as those who by grace have been made to believe, to find all the more reason to rejoice in Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name and bless you for heaven opened. Amen.